freedom. What does it mean to be free? Truly free. Over the course of my life, I've noticed that society at large tends to connect the word freedom to overarching concepts that are drawn out of our constitution. And that's not wrong, necessarily. The government does guarantee us various freedoms like free speech or freedom of the press, but when I think of freedom, I think about it more on a spiritual level. Almost like freedom is the complete ability to affirm through and through to both myself and to the world at large that which I am. It's difficult to put into words. Believe me, I've tried. It's just something that I know. There's something unique about human nature and that we are so complex. And one of these complexities is that humans have an innate desire to persist, to persist living, to persist thriving, to persist just existing. But merely existing isn't enough without freedom or some degree of freedom. And there are so many ways to be free. Freedom can come in little moments. It can come in the shape of developing laws or rights. It can come from wealth. It can come from expression. The list goes on and on. And freedom is different for everyone. And then, I think, there are smaller freedoms that trickle down from these broad-reaching concepts. It's not exactly written down anywhere that a person has the freedom to eat the food in her own kitchen at her leisure, or to make a split decision to go out with a friend, or even when one can use the bathroom to shower. Various legal scholars would probably argue that our civil rights granted by the Constitution of the United States are what affords us these freedoms. Or perhaps at some point somewhere, a court of law decided something that set a precedent for society saying, yes, you can in fact do those things and are free to do so at your desire. But are these freedoms really granted to us by a government that exists in the abstract? I mean, when you think about it, where is the government? There are people who have jobs in the government and there are buildings and press conferences and courthouses and judges. but. Isn't the government something that we just all continue to agree upon? And why is that? Well, there's the obvious law and order of society, but truth be told, I think of it in such terms that freedoms are so carefully talked about within the confines of the law because we all know that freedom, whatever it may be, is a necessary component to the core of our existence, even the little freedoms. But what if you didn't have those freedoms, those little moments of mobility or privacy, of the ability to touch and utilize the possessions you have at your disposal, or to even possess them at all? We do, after all, take these little freedoms for granted. The biggest of all, I would argue, is our own autonomy. So what is autonomy exactly? In essential terms, it's the ability to self-govern. The word actually stems from the Greek words autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. But there's a lot more to autonomy than just that. In the philosophical sense, if we think back to the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant, it's the human capacity to act in accordance with what is moral for the sake of itself, as in doing things in the right way for the right reason, as opposed to doing the right thing because political figures or religious doctrines compel us to do so. I'm glossing over this concept, and arguably my philosophy friends may object to this definition, but for layman's terms, I think this definition suffices. But there's also an internal need for autonomy in the physical sense of the word. 
that seems as though it's hardwired into the very fabric of our existence as humans. We long for it when it's taken from us. For example, go ahead and tell anyone that they are no longer allowed to do something and watch the aggression, the pushback, the outrage ensue. Even if that freedom had never before been exercised, it is human nature to, at the very minimum, question and even rebuff the logic behind the restriction, regardless of whether it's for our own good or even the good of others. Autonomy to me is just one type of freedom, but it's a kind of freedom that's important. And it's also the type of freedom that I want to explore in this multi-episode installment. In the United States, it's well known that the level of prisoners per capita is one of the highest in the world, ranking alongside Turkmenistan and El Salvador. The reasons for such a high rate of prisoners stem from a plethora of societal and institutional causes, which are not necessarily the focus of this story. Suffice it to say, there are many among us whose freedom in the form of autonomy has all but been stripped away from them as they lay in their cells and live in monotony. Many of the freedoms I described before, even the little ones, are not afforded to those who have been incarcerated, especially for those who have committed violent crimes and reside in high to maximum security penitentiaries. These men, and they are mostly men at a rate of about 90%, are told what they can eat, what they can wear, when they can shower, when they can interact, and which possessions they can have. For many of them, in particular those who are serving lengthy sentences, the dream of freedom begins to burn out over time until it is scarcely more than the memory of smoke rising from the wick of a candle that's been blown out. To say that this is a crushing blow to the human psyche would likely be an understatement. I myself have never been to prison and I do not intend on making a stay at one at any point, but I can just barely imagine the slow, crawling, monotonous days with little else to do but go through the collective thoughts I've gathered over the course of my life. For most prisoners, this is how they spend their lives after incarceration. But for some, it's just not enough. So what would you do for your freedom? To what lengths would you go to gain your own autonomy back after the quality of life? Everyone you know and every simple pleasure you could experience has been stripped away. If you're curious about what some have done to regain their freedom, then come along with me on this journey as I recount to you the events leading up to July 7th, 2003, when two convicted murderers escaped from the hellish confines of Elmira Correctional Facility in southern New York State. My name is Dominique, and I've been fascinated with the concept of freedom since as long as I can remember. I love hearing a good story, but more importantly, I love telling them to people. This is Breakthrough, the podcast where I dig up every detail I can to tell you a story of an epic quest for freedom, how it happened, and the ingenuity, the audacity, and the resilience some will go to to gain their freedom, even when they are the worst among us.
Elmira, New York. It's a small city located in the southern tier region of New York State. It's pretty close to the Pennsylvania border. In fact, if you drove from downtown Elmira to a Smoke and Joe's tobacco shop, which sits almost exactly on the border of New York and Pennsylvania, you could probably get there in under 15 minutes after traveling roughly 10 miles south on highways 14 and 328. It's a quaint, lovely town with the iconic rolling hills and valleys surrounded by luscious forest that New York State is known for. As of 2023, the population of Elmira is only about 26,000, and it's been declining steadily since its high in the 1950s of approximately 50,000. In fact, according to a July 2023 report distributed by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, employment in Elmira has declined steadily over the years with an even sharper drop-off during the COVID-19 pandemic. Part of the reason being is that Almira used to be known for its manufacturing, its canals, and its railroads that would ship goods across New York State. But thanks to the 1972 Hurricane Agnes, the area was flooded and it was deemed that they would not rebuild. To make matters worse, in 2012, the Sulkorsky Aircraft Factory closed, leading to further economic downturn in the city of Elmira. But Elmira is still captivating, with its ties to history and all it has to offer. It currently has about 11 schools, a college, and various other historical and famous sites, such as the National Soaring Museum, an aviation museum dedicated to preserving the history of motorless flight. There's also the Woodlawn Cemetery, a plot of land replete with luscious trees and mirror-like ponds, the final resting place of Mark Twain and his family. One such tie to history is the Elmira Correctional Facility. Located on the far west side of the city between North Hoffman Road and Interstate 86, the prison was first established in 1876 and was named the Elmira Reformatory. The prison was unique for its time, focusing on rehabilitation and psychological methods as opposed to physical. The facility taught ethics and religion classes to inmates as well as various vocational trainings. However, Prison sentences were indeterminate. One could only be released if it was granted by the warden, Zebulon Brockway. However, in the ensuing years, corporal punishment would leak its way back into the prison, and many inmates were ultimately transferred to insane asylums as a result. The practices at Elmira would inspire an additional 25 reformatories to be constructed, with the reformatory ideals of prisons at its height at around 1910. Following Brockway's resignation, the reformatory system was eventually abandoned, and in 1970, the prison was renamed to Elmira Correctional Facility, and maintains that name to this day. Currently, the facility has the capacity to hold approximately 1,800 inmates, which was also the case in 2003. The prison isn't very striking from the outside and doesn't seem to have undergone any major changes in its structure since 2003. In fact, if you saw it, you'd probably guess that it was a prison just by the looks of it. From the front, the red brick facade stretches endlessly across an expanse of grass and fields just on the outskirts of town. Behind the looming and intimidating entrance to the forest sits seven guard towers, 14 prisoner cell blocks, a carpentry shop, a machine shop, educational facilities, and a medical facility, among other buildings and establishments. Perhaps more menacing than the exterior of the prison is its reputation. Its nickname is The Hill, perhaps because it rests atop a hill and is reportedly visible from the grave of Mark Twain. 
but don't be fooled by the seemingly innocent reference. Fights break out on a regular basis. Being a maximum security prison, it houses some of the most dangerous convicted criminals, ranging from murderers, rapists, child molesters, robbers, and gang members. Last year alone, according to Elmira Correctional Facility's own statistics, it averaged about 80 inmate-on-inmate fights and assaults per year. And those are just the ones that are reported. The difference between a maximum security prison and a medium or low security prison isn't just in the name. It makes a difference in a lot of ways. Let's back up for a second and explain some of these differences. First, many people don't realize that jails and prisons are different. While jails are typically meant to house inmates for a relatively short period of time while the offender awaits trial or sentencing, prisons are long-term holding facilities designed to house inmates for sentences that are longer than one year. And then, of course, there are state prisons and federal prisons, the distinction being whether the offender committed a state crime, such as a robbery or a homicide, or a federal crime, such as drug trafficking or tax fraud. Within the various state systems and the federal prison system, there are different levels of security at each prison due to a variety of factors such as types of offenses committed by the inmate and the length of prison sentence. For example, a minimum security prison might house inmates in a dormitory-style setting. They typically house nonviolent offenders and have little to no fencing or perimeter. Inmates at these prisons can sometimes leave the prison to go to work. Then there's low security, with slightly more violent offenders who typically must have no more than 20 years left on their sentence. These prisons arguably have more opportunities for inmates to get treatment and education. Next, there's medium security, which does house violent offenders. This is where we get the typical cell block style housing and razor wire surrounding the perimeter. And finally, there's the maximum security prison. These prisons are reserved for violent offenders, although technically any inmate can be placed in a maximum security prison. In these prisons, the ones like Elmira Correctional Facility, inmates are under constant scrutiny and surveillance. Not only does razor wire surround the perimeter, there are guard towers and each guard is armed with an automatic weapon with the authority to shoot escapees. This is a dangerous place to be. If you're an inmate, not only are you never alone and always accounted for, there is also the precariousness of navigating a closed-in community made up entirely of some of the most hardened criminals in society, all of whom are also caged in with you. It's a recipe for disaster. One wrong move could put you on a hit list, get you stabbed, beaten, or worse. If that's not enough, Inmates at maximum security prisons are often sent to solitary confinement for any infraction. Needless to say, I would imagine it would be pretty scary to be a newcomer in a maximum security prison. Among the cell blocks at Elmira sits cell block F, which is the primary focus of our story. Cell block F is in the general population, or gen pop as it's referred to colloquially. The term is used to describe the majority of the prison population that hasn't been segregated into special housing, like death row, or those who are isolated for disciplinary or protective reasons. Housed in F-Block were two inmates, Timothy Vale and Timothy Morgan. In 2003, Vale was serving a 49-year-to-life sentence for second-degree murder 
one count each of first-degree robbery and first-degree rape, plus second- and third-degree burglary. Morgan was serving 25 years to life for one count of first-degree murder, two counts of first-degree robbery, first-degree criminal use of a firearm, and fourth-degree grand larceny. Eventually, I will go into the details and the circumstances of their crimes, but that's for later. For now. Vale was convicted in 1989, but spent time at various other prisons such as Attica and Auburn before eventually being transferred to Elmira. Likewise, Morgan also spent time moving between various prisons before he was transferred to Elmira in 2000. If you're wondering why prisoners are transferred so much, the reasons are somewhat vague. Prisoners can elect to be transferred for personal reasons, which may or may not be granted, depending on the behavior of the prisoner. Sometimes a prisoner's risk level may change due to good or bad behavior, and a transfer may be forced upon them. There may be a litany of reasons, including overcrowding or inhibiting gang activity, but regardless, Vale was described by many, including correctional officers and civilian workers, to be friendly, kind, and engaging. He was born in 1972 in Sacramento, California. His father, a mechanic, died of natural causes when he was just 10 years old. Eventually, Vale and his mother would move to New York, where he began to hone his art skills and enjoy the country life of rural New York. He was a gifted painter, often being called upon by prison guards to paint decorations for Christmas that were displayed in the prison. He often did paintings for other inmates and would give, barter, or sell them, an act that was prohibited by prison regulations. But due to his rapport with the prison guards, they seemed to give him a fair amount of allowances, such as looking the other way from time to time. According to Vale and officers, he was often called out of duty for odd projects and assignments, given his status as a model inmate. Not to mention, he was also a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. He was able to make a homemade tattoo gun with nothing but objects he found in the prison. The sheer inventiveness behind that is utterly amazing. There was something about him, as guards described after the fact that just made it easy to be around him. But in reality, Vale had the uncanny ability to manipulate and otherwise evade detection by feigning his good behavior to an opportunistic level. Moreover, Vale was highly intelligent. Along with being a talented artist, he understood carpentry and machinery. His prison record up until this point was essentially spotless, which allowed him to work a job as a porter in the mornings and the facility's carpentry shop in the afternoons. Morgan also worked as a porter, a job that afforded him the ability to move relatively freely around certain parts of the prison. A lot less is known about Morgan and his demeanor for reasons that I think will become clearer as this story progresses. But suffice it to say, it's hard to dig up much on him, where he's from, and what led him to spend his time in Elmira Correctional Facility. What I do know is that Morgan essentially kept his nose down, did his job, and didn't cause much of a fuss. These are skills that can be essential to surviving in prison. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's better to be unnoticed in prison than the alternative. Let's begin with a typical day in the life of a prisoner at Elmira Correctional Facility. Inmates are awake at 6.30 a.m. for the master headcount, 
in which they are required to be standing by their beds so that an officer can mark them as present and accounted for. Next, inmates can eat breakfast and or shower before heading off to their respective job assignments at 8.30. Between 11.30 and noon, inmates are back in their cells for the second master count. They eat lunch, go back to work, they have dinner from four to five, and then inmates are in their cells or can walk around the common areas until the master count at 10.30. From 10.30 onwards, inmate cells are checked every two hours to ensure their presence until 6.30 a.m. when the master count begins. Think about it. Up, food, work, food, more work, more food, sitting around, bed. Repeat. Over and over and over. Day in and day out, with the possible exceptions of weekends where not all inmates have to work and possible visitation by relatives. Up, food, work, food, more work, more food, sitting around, bed. Imagine your life being that every single day. If you're sitting there listening to this and you're wondering, how bad can it be? I do that every day. Yes, and so do I. But the difference is stark. For one, you get to wake up in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to share an 8 foot by 10 foot cell with a criminal and sleep on nothing more than a foam mattress. You also get to choose what you eat for breakfast, and you, presumably, have a job that you interviewed for and chose. When you come home, you can do whatever you want whatever you want, with complete privacy if you so choose. You can go out to dinner to see a movie. You can scroll aimlessly through your phone on the internet with the TV in the background, and you can choose what you are watching. Dinner is your choice, and so is the time you go to sleep, and no one is checking in on you, making sure you are where you're supposed to be in the middle of the night. To me, this all is very reminiscent of being a child, in a way. Inmates are told what to do. They're not offered the choice of a meal or a job. You get what they're making that day and you get to work where you're placed. Many inmates who spend significant time in prison are also lost to our advancing society, many of whom are unfamiliar with current events and advancements in technology. These are all simple pleasures that we take for granted on the outside, myself included, admittedly. I'm not always thinking about the luxuries I have in the free world because they're all around me all the time. Try telling an inmate who's been incarcerated since 1988 about your Twitter and TikTok and how you can't wait for the new iPhone to come out. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Not to mention, prisons can be disgusting. Forget carpeted floors and quilted comforters. Forget the clothes that you have on. You get a set amount of socks and underwear and it's the same as everybody else's. Up food, work, food. More work, more food, sitting around, bed. Always, every day, all the time, with no end in sight. From everything I've heard about prison, from speaking with people who have been to prison, to documentaries, journals, studies, and articles, one of the things I come across more often than not is that it's not the guards or the inmates that you have to dread. It's the boredom, the monotony, the complete and utter lack of autonomy. Up, food, work, food, more work, more food, sitting around, bed. It's enough to drive a person crazy. And that is exactly how Timothy Vale felt. 
Vale and Morgan first met in the summer of 2000. The two shared a cell for a period of time while they were both attending a program called RSAT, the Residential Substance Abuse Treatment Program. They were swapped out of their cells, then reassigned back to a cell together, and in March of 2001, Vale and Morgan were separated for a second time as a result of a routine cell swap and would not live together again until March 2003. During this time, the monotony and the lack of freedom was beginning to wear on Vale. The agony of being confined in this way would grind on anyone. Think about an animal locked up in a cage with nothing to do day in and day out. It makes me claustrophobic just thinking about it. Up until December 2001, Vale was assigned as a porter in the morning and then would move to the carpentry shop in the afternoon. Then, after passing a student program in the carpentry shop, Vale was eventually promoted to full-time at the shop as a tool clerk. Morgan remained a porter for the entirety of his stay at Elmira. In case you're wondering, a porter essentially assists correctional officers and will sometimes move items such as laundry or supplies from one place in the prison to another. It affords the ability of movement through the prison, not just of oneself, but of possible contraband, a problem that many prisons face with respect to inmate porters. But Vale was beginning to distinguish himself among the correctional officers. He'd never caused any issues or had any infractions, so the guards were relatively lax on him. So, unlike most, Vale got certain allowances that others may not have gotten. In August of 2002, Morgan was again reassigned to a different cell, cell block F-2-7T. In Elmira Correctional Facility Code, this means cell block F, two-person cell, gallery seven, top bunk, F-2-7-T. As the months wore on, Vale became increasingly restless, doing the same thing over and over day in and day out, having nothing to look forward to but a minimum sentence of 49 years. To put that into perspective, he was 35 years old when he was incarcerated in 1989, and by 2003, he would have been about 49 years old. Having served only 14 years of a minimum 49-year sentence, he still had another 35 years to go. That means that he wouldn't be eligible for parole until he was 84 years old. To top things off, when an inmate gets sentenced to a term of years, quote, to life, that doesn't mean that they get out when the term of years is up. It just means that they're eligible to go in front of a parole board and petition for their own release. There's no guarantee that a parole board would even let you out. In fact, it's difficult even to get parole. I imagine that parole boards are probably terrified of letting out somebody who could be dangerous and having it come back to haunt them. Needless to say, Vale was, in essence, looking at a lifetime behind bars and couldn't live with the idea that this would be the rest of his life. By February of 2003, he could contain himself no longer. And this is when Vale approached Morgan about executing a prison escape. When you have nothing but time on your hands and you're confined to the same space, you start to notice things that you wouldn't otherwise notice. And Vale had plenty of time in this space. One day, while out in the prison yard, 
Vale, in his keen eye, found himself looking at the rooftop of his block, cell block F. Perhaps he'd looked at it before, but never really saw it, until he noticed that on top of the rooftop of his cell block, there was what appeared to be the end of a venting system covered with horizontal metal louvers, and it dawned on him. If he could get to the attic, the floor just above the highest cell in that block, he just might be able to locate the ventilation duct and escape by breaking through the louvers and then rappelling down the prison walls with a rope. More importantly, he noticed, this particular area was in a blind spot to the guard towers, an opportunity that could afford them the time they would need to escape. Let me stop here and explain something about prison systems and what happens if you're caught trying to escape. First and foremost, you might be sitting there listening to this and thinking that you would do the same thing in Vale's position. After all, you're looking at a life behind bars. You've already lost everything, so what else do you have to lose? If you're thinking along these lines, I can't tell you how wrong you would be. First of all, Prison rules are designed to keep contraband out of inmates' cells, and contraband includes all of the things that you would need to break out of your cell. Blades, ropes, virtually anything metallic, screws, hammers, anything that you cannot find in the commissary. Anything they find on your person or in your cell that's not approved by prison regulations can land you time in the hole. The hole, in prison terms, is what's referred to as solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is arguably more dangerous for a person's mental health than being in prison in the first place. In the hole, you're confined to a cell for about 23 hours a day, alone, with the possibility of being let out for one hour a day to shower or exercise. Forget any human interaction whatsoever, or having anything to do. It's proven that solitary confinement messes with the human psychology. We now know that solitary confinement leads to psychosis, the symptoms of which are hallucinations, delusions, talking incoherently to oneself and others, and extreme agitation. Isolation also leads to thoughts of suicidal ideations. Humans were not meant to be isolated. Then there's the other point that you'd be confined to a cell of probably about 80 square feet, a room that's about the size of a horse stable. You're not afforded any luxuries like a TV or recreation time, except for when they let you out to exercise, which is probably just allowing you to go out into something like a dog kennel. By the way, for attempting a prison escape, you would probably be sentenced to months or even years in the hole just for contraband in your cell that indicates you were trying to escape. And that's just assuming you didn't get past the planning phase. Let's say you actually make it to the outside. And by the way, assuming you've made it to the outside, you've spent a considerable amount of time plotting your escape, probably months, leaving a multitude of opportunities and evidence for your plot to be discovered. That's a lot of time for someone to notice what you're up to. But for the sake of argument, let's say you actually breach the prison walls and make it to the outside. At a maximum security prison, there are towers that sit high above the prison cell blocks. 
these towers are manned with armed guards with automatic weapons who have been authorized to shoot down escapees in the event that an inmate breaches the prison walls. There are huge football stadium-like lights to ensure the guards can see in the dark. And if you're lucky to get past the prison guards, you're more likely to run into a patrolling prison car or barbed wire fences. Again, the guards are allowed to shoot without command. Now, according to my research, they're trained to shoot to wound, not to kill. However, if their shot results in the death of an inmate, it's totally legal. The legality behind a correctional officer shooting an escaping inmate and the circumstances behind the shooting varies state by state and circumstance by circumstance. But the very general consensus is that if an inmate is escaping and must be shot to be stopped, the officer is within his rights to do so. In other words, if you're fortunate enough to plan an escape and execute it to the point where you can actually smell the fresh air on the outsides of the prison wall, you run the risk of losing your life. And if you don't lose your life, added time to your sentence. And forget about being in the same prison you were when you escaped, you would definitely be transferred to a totally new, totally unfamiliar prison. Because why would they let you stay in a prison that you were able to get out of? And by chance, if you were the one of the very, very lucky few to execute your plan, reach the outside, and get away from the prison, what do you do now? You don't have an ID, your face is completely recognizable, you have no access to money, and you have the entire police force and general public hunting your every track. The long and short of it is, you need a plan on the outside. Dogs can trace your scent, and nowadays, although it wasn't the technology back in 2003, there are thermal imaging cameras that helicopters can use to detect heat given off by a human body. So you probably won't be able to hide for long. You'd need a ride, a pre-organized location, a way to make yourself off the grid, like a new identity, a new driver's license, social security number, a passport. These are not easy things to get. Even if you are one of the most well-connected inmates, that connection often doesn't stem farther than the walls of the prison. If you're found and captured, you run the risk of being gunned down by police, and if you're recaptured, you will be sent to a new prison. You'll have time added to your sentence, be denied all privileges, and put in solitary confinement for years. That's right, years. Who wants to be alone for that long? Needless to say, the stakes for escaping and getting caught are high. I bet at this point you're thinking about the privileges of Gen Pop, where inmates are allowed to talk to one another, eat snacks from the commissary, have a few personal items, and watch television or play cards. Those are looking pretty nice right about now, aren't they? So when you really think about it, there is a lot to lose. Autonomy is relative. I can have some of my self-governance controlled, like the clothes I wear or the movements I make, but I can always have more to lose, can't I? It's a lot to take in, and it's no wonder that escape attempts are so rare. Even rarer are the ones who actually make it outside the prison walls. But then again, 
there's a reason why we're so fascinated with prison escapes. It's not just because it's a proclamation of one of the innate necessities a human being can do to seek freedom. It's also because it takes a lot of creativity, cunning, ingenuity, and a lot of patience. And Vale had plenty of all of that. After all, up until this point, he'd already spent well over a decade confined. The two now needed to deal with the first of many issues to come. Vale was on the ground floor in F block, so how do you convince the warden to let you move cells when your plan is to escape from prison? And Morgan had the perfect cell. The problem was that Morgan already had a cellmate. But Vale had time to think about that issue. I haven't been able to dig up anything on who Morgan was sharing a cell with at the time, and I likely don't think I would be able to, given the fact that it's not mentioned in any of the publicly available sources I found. In addition, back in 2003, it was prison procedure at Elmira to destroy most unnecessary documents after about 30 days, so a record probably doesn't even exist anymore. The two must have had an amicable relationship, given the fact that the cellmate agreed to do what Morgan asked, which was request a transfer. What I do know about the man was that he was black, and both Vale and Morgan were white. The reason I bring up the man's race is actually significant to the cell swap. Maximum security prisons host their fair share of gang members, and typically many gangs are composed of members of the same race. I'm sure you've heard of the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacist gang that originated in California's San Quentin prison. Then, of course, there are the Crips and the Bloods, two notorious rival African-American gangs that originated in L.A. Even if you're not a part of a gang, there are race-related confrontations and rivalries in prisons all the time. Therefore, when Morgan's cellmate listed, quote, ethnic balance as his reason for requesting a cell transfer, it wasn't questioned, and there were no red flags. Besides, according to the Department of Correctional Services report written and signed by the then-commissioner Glenn Gord, Department policy lists ethnic compatibility as one of the many criteria listed for consideration when assessing the compatibility of a double-cell occupant. And when Vale asked to be moved in with Morgan, there were no obvious questions since the two had celled together before and never had an issue. Their request was deemed granted. It was a small victory, but a victory nonetheless. The two would have a very long way to go from this point forward. But if you're curious about what those steps will be, then join me next week as we continue on with our epic quest for freedom by escaping from Elmira Correctional Facility. 